This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more to the program. So briefly... The six realms of a cyclic existence explained as psychological archetypes are those in immense suffering being tortured by others or existing in extreme environments can be thought of as in hellish situations. Those going through intense hunger and thirst, even in the sense of being wealthy but never satisfied, are our representatives of the hungry ghost realm. And people who are widely explo- exploited because of their ignorance define the animal mentality. Then we know what it's like to be human with our manifold unsatisfied desires. And people who are intensely competitive, arrogant and jealous define their zero mentality. The mega-wealthy with almost nothing to worry about except death approximate the gods. How we can find people like these in all these situations on earth and can therefore picture ourselves being born as them in coming lives even though we might be sceptical about existences other than those we can find here on earth. Lama Tsongkhapa recommends we do so to develop a disgust for being constantly driven to such lives while still under the sway of negative karma and disturbing conceptions. The text says, By contemplating in this way, do not generate even for an instant the wish for the pleasures of cyclic existence. When you have day and night unceasingly the mind aspiring for liberation, then you have generated the, de- the determination to be free. Geshe Sonam Rinchen in his commentary writes, Thinking about the suffering in bad rebirths helps to arouse the wish to find a way out of the cycle of involuntary birth and death. But for that wish to develop fully, we must overcome our fascination with the marvels of cyclic existence. We can easily see how unstable and tenuous wealth, authority, power and fame are the meteoric rise and fall of rulers, politicians, business magnates and film stars whose activities make headline news for a short time provide ample evidence of this. Though we know how ephemeral it all is, this is what attracts and fascinates us. Many of us, at least secretly, would like to be in their shoes when the going is good. And if not exactly in their position, in one where we can enjoy more luxury and greater authority than we do at present. It's this compulsive attraction that must be overcome if we wish to escape from cyclic existence. We therefore have to force ourselves to consider the disadvantageous aspect of the very things that appear so compelling. Everything associated with cyclic existence is fundamentally flawed. Birth as a human or celestial being is the best kind of birth in cyclic existence, but what does it herald? More pleasure or pain? And now, before we go further, let's set our motivation as we usually do. 
And in accordance with Geshe Sonam Rinchen's instruction, let's try to think how everything about this existence is fatally flawed and make the determination to be free of it. But then also think of all the other myriad beings caught in exactly the same flawed situation and at least try to develop the wish to help them out of it as well. So, if you can, join me in motivating that this program will become a cause for the liberation and enlightenment of all such beings everywhere. Thank you. Now going back to talking about birth and cyclic existence, it leads to a contemplation of the various sufferings that we have to undergo when we take such a birth. We have already spoken in previous programs about these sufferings which in the Tibetan tradition are often taught in the form of three, six or eight. The eight are those the Buddha himself enumerated in his very first teaching, birth, aging, sickness and death, meeting with what is unpleasant, not meeting with what is pleasant, not getting what we desire and just having these five aggregates born out of karma and afflictive emotions. In his book, Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, Geshe Lodin describes birth as being stuck in a small heated container without light or air and filled with foul, foul liquids. When the mother eats or drinks something hot, the fetus feels burned, and when she consumes something cold, it feels freezing. Also, if the mother sits heavily, the fetus feels like it's being thrown around in a sack, he says. When the child finally escapes its fettered little cell, it has to squeeze itself through a very thin crack between what appeared to be two mountains, and it comes out into a world that is incredibly harsh to its senses. That's the suffering of birth, and perhaps that's why most of us don't remember it at all. Then when we age, our beautiful young shape with its fine skin and shiny white teeth becomes all saggy. The skin becomes dull, wrinkled and marked with age spots and varicose veins. The hair turns grey and then white and falls out. Our eyes can't see and our ears can't hear so well anymore and even delicious food becomes kind of bland. Our movement slows down to the extent where we eventually have to walk with a stick or a walker and nobody wants to know us anymore. One writer said, How good that old age comes bit by bit. If it came all at once, it would be unbearable then we all know how nasty it is to be sick when all our vigour disappears and we become a helpless bedridden bag of misery, as Geshe Loden says. Never mind vomiting and diarrhoea, we have no appetite for the food we usually like, we can't do the things we usually enjoy, and even visits from friends can be torture. Then at death time we lose everything that made life worthwhile, our friends and relatives, our wealth and possessions, and this body that we spend so much time looking after. As Geshe Lodin says, the enjoyment and sense of security that you felt from wealth, food, music, companionship, family, friends, business, power, influence, fame, and the basic stability of your body are all lost at death. Death is a new, uncharted, and frightening journey. Then, considering meeting up with the unpleasant, Think of how although we don't want even the least discomfort, we're always banging up against painful situations. Again, Geshe Loden writes, We meet dangerous, crazy people, or may be forced to spend a long aeroplane journey sitting next to an interminable bore. 
We may be controlled by a dictator, manipulated by ruthless businessmen, or nagged by our spouse. From having a serious illness to our football, well in our case rugby team, losing the grand final year after year, and from having an operation to finding half a worm in our apple, we constantly encounter situations we find unpleasant. Now you might have difficulty with a breathing meditation, but I'm sure that you'd have no problem sitting down for a 20-minute meditation on the unpleasant things and people you've had to endure in your life. Similarly, you would probably have little trouble remembering the pleasurable things, people and events you wanted to be involved with, but which for one reason or another you couldn't be. We might long to be with our lovers, family and friends, but sooner or later separation comes, even if it's only for a week or so. However, death, theirs or ours, is always lurking in the background to separate us completely. Also, we can so easily lose the wealth, fame and status we fight so hard for. I think of all those eager, eager people who sang, danced and performed their way to brief glory through shows like American Idol and then completely faded back into obscurity. Then the seventh suffering is not getting what we desire. Again, think of the times that you really wanted something to happen and it didn't. Recently I was talking to a student who had wanted excellences in all her exams and had mostly got them, but had landed up with one or two merits. She was not happy. Our lives are filled with such frustrations. We want a top job, but it goes to someone else. We're attracted to someone who barely gives us a second look. The list goes on and on. So many conditions seem to conspire against our desires, and even if we manage to fulfill them, a lot of the time we're not satisfied. I often tell the story of visiting a friend of mine who had recently bought the most up-to-date stereo with surround sound and all sorts of knobs and buttons to play his favorite hard metal as loud as possible. But when I said how impressed I was with the set, he shrugged his shoulders. He wasn't so happy with it, and when I asked why, he pointed to a dial and said there was no light behind it so it wouldn't be backlit at night. Now that is some sorrow for you. And then the final suffering of the eight is that just by being born with these five aggregates, that is the Buddhist way of describing our body and mind, and means form, feeling, discrimination, compositional factors and consciousness, being born with these five formed through karma and afflictive emotions, we can never be free of suffering. No matter where we turn, what we do, no matter how much we run around fixing things, we will always bump up against the unsatisfactory nature of our existence. We will always suffer. In the three sufferings, this is called all-pervasive suffering, and it's only eliminated when we finally realize the nature of reality experientially. If we want to be free of all the other sufferings, this is the one we have to attack. And that is why the Buddha, after listing the other seven, said, In brief, the five aggregates subject to grasping are suffering. And this translation is by Payadasi Terra. You may remember the other two of the three sufferings. There are firstly what we normally label suffering, such as broken limbs, broken relationships, broken possessions, sickness and so on. That is, those events and experiences that fill our lives with miseries, 
from slight discomforts to major traumas. You would not find any ordinary being on this planet that hasn't experienced this common type of suffering. And then the second of the three, the suffering of change, is what we normally label pleasure. And the reason we say our mundane pleasures are in the nature of suffering is that the more we indulge in them, the worse they become. The more ice cream we eat at one sitting, the closer we come to feeling bilious. The more hours we sit watching movies, the closer we come to a mammoth headache and bloodshot eyes. Just think of the thing you most enjoy doing and then imagine doing it continuously for several hours. How would you feel at the end of it? Is there any pleasure you can think of that increases your satisfaction the more you indulge in it continuously? Let me know if you find one, for I'll be very surprised. As I said before, to develop real renunciation, we have to realize the third type of suffering, that is, all-pervasive suffering. We have to really understand that as long as we are born and reborn with the five aggregates under the influence of karma and afflictive emotions, we will be rolling around on the highway of suffering, constantly buffeted by the vehicles of pain that pass along it. From time to time, we might roll to the side of the highway and miss most of the Mack trucks that are barreling along, but sooner or later, another vehicle will come along and sweep us back into the middle of the road where all the traffic moves. There's only one way to get off the highway completely, and that is the realization of the true nature of reality which is the third principal aspect of the path. That's the only way. And to make our way there, we must gain a realization of the all-pervasive suffering, just realizing the other two, the suffering of suffering and the suffering of change, is not enough to give us the renunciation that wishes to be free of cyclic existence day and night without break. Then another way to think about the sufferings of cyclic existence involves meditating on six points, the first of which is that our existence is basically filled with uncertainty. The very things that fascinate us, writes Keshe Sonam Rinchen, in which we place our hopes and to which we cling despite many disappointments are utterly untrustworthy and unreliable. Our friends, from whom we expect so much, may well have been our bitter enemies in the past and vice versa. Those who are our friends now may become our foes later in life, and our present foes may become our closest friends. A single word or look can change a relationship between morning and night. We join a friend for dinner, expecting to have a good time, and before the meal is over, friendship has turned to enmity. Now, How many people with a job they think is securely theirs, through changed circumstances, suddenly find themselves redundant? How many invested fortunes that for a long time have kept or increased their value disappear overnight? It seems every week there's a new story about some businessman in court for fraudulent practice that robbed a host of investors of their savings. We can actually trust nothing in samsara. It's made of the stuff of uncertainty. Although he got the part about the death right in his famous aphorism Nothing is certain except death and taxes, Benjamin Franklin should have rethought the taxes bit. Geshe Loden quotes one story about a man eating fish at his house by a lakeside while cradling his baby son and kicking away a dog, snatching at the fish bones he spat onto the floor. Shariputra, one of Buddha's close disciples, with the power of clairvoyance, came by and saw that the fish the man was eating 
was previously his father who had died and then been reborn a fish because he'd liked to catch fish from the lake so much. The dog was the man's deceased mother. She'd been very attached to the house and so in her next rebirth as a dog had become the guard dog of the household. The child the man was cradling had been a wanderer who had landed up at the house and, developing lust for the man's wife, had raped her. When the man had found out, he had killed the rapist. But because the wanderer had been so attracted to the wife, he was duly reborn as her child. Said Shariputra, He eats his father's flesh and kicks his mother. He cradles the enemy he killed on his lap. A wife gnaws on her husband's bones. Cyclic existence is such a joke. Such is the first of the six sufferings, that of uncertainty. And the second is unsatisfactoriness. Writes Keshe Loden, As a deer is hopelessly drawn to sound, a butterfly to colour and bees to honey, we are uncontrollably propelled to gain more and more of the pleasures of cyclic existence. And yet the very dissatisfaction and lack of contentment that drives us ensures that we will never be satisfied. It's like drinking salt water. Our thirst will never be quenched, but simply grow stronger and stronger. A man with one hundred dollars does not believe he has enough and wants a thousand. The man with a thousand wants ten, and the man with ten thousand wants a hundred thousand. Ask the man with ten million dollars whether he has sufficient, and he will tell you he needs a bit more to pay off his yacht, and so he keeps working to get more and more. A man with ten billion dollars does not pull up stumps and say, that's enough now, I'm content, but keeps struggling against the competition to build his business more and more. No matter how good our situation, we soon get bored and want something more and perpetuate cyclic existence. Bigger house, later model car, better holidays, new girlfriend, change of country, more interesting diversions, more excitement, greater achievement, more fame, reputation and power. It never ends. No matter what we achieve, without contentment, we will always suffer from dissatisfaction. And that's why the Buddha said that the greatest wealth is the mind of contentment. The third of the six sufferings in samsara is that we must discard bodies again and again. Leaving the male body, you've been born a female, writes Geshe Loden. Leaving the human body, you've taken rebirth as various animals. You've enjoyed the body of the king of gods, residing in his abode, enjoying his pleasures, retinue and activities, the magnificence of which is beyond your current comprehension. But then you've left it behind like last night's dream and been reborn in the lower realms. As a human, you've been born the most beautiful person in the world and yet in another birth the most ugly and deformed. You've been black, yellow and white, constantly discarding one body in order to adopt the next. And then the fourth suffering follows on from the third. If we must die again and again, we must, of course, have to be reborn again and again. We've already described the unpleasantness of the birth process, but unless we are liberated, we will have to go through it gazillions of times more. Not only that, but think of the lives we will be born into. Perhaps like a fly in this description by William Styrone in his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Confessions of Nat Turner. For a long moment I pondered the condition of a fly, only half listening 
to the uproar outside the jail, which rose and fell like summer thunder, hovering, near yet remote. In many ways, I thought, a fly must be one of the most fortunate of God's creatures. Brainless born, brainlessly seeking its sustenance from anything wet and warm, it found its brainless mate, reproduced, and died brainless, unacquainted with misery or grief. But then I asked myself, how could I be sure? Who could say that flies were not instead God's supreme outcasts, buzzing eternally between heaven and oblivion in a pure agony of mindless twitching, forced by instinct to dine off sweat and slime and offal, their very brainlessness and everlasting torment? So that if someone, well-meaning but mistaken, wished himself in a more monstrous hell than he had ever imagined, an existence in which there was no active will, no choice, but a blind and automatic obedience to instinct which caused him to feast endlessly and gluttonously and revoltingly upon the guts of a rotting fox or a bucket of prisoner's slops. Surely, then, that would be the ultimate damnation, to exist in the world of a fly, eating thus, without will or choice and against all desire. Even many of the Buddhist texts I'm familiar with cannot match such a lurid description of, for suffering. And such will be our future if we do not escape cyclic existence. The next suffering is that of a constant change of status. We can never be sure of our position. We might build ourselves into the top 2% of the wealthy in this world, but we cannot hold on to it, and sooner or later we will have to give it all up, either when we die or when the stock market crashes. In the not-so-distant past, Australia's Kevin Rudd was deposed as Prime Minister by Julia Gillard, only for his successor to, in turn, be replaced by him again. But in due course, Rudd lost the premiership once again, this time to the current Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. Not only in this life, but from life to life, we go through the swings from high to low and back again, again and again. From king to beggar, from CEO to tea lady, our status is never stable. And the final suffering of the six is that we go alone. As James Baxter famously wrote, Alone we are born and die alone, yet see the red gold cirrus over snow mountain shine. Upon the upland road rise e ride easy, stranger, surrender to the sky your heart of anger. All our experiences, starting with birth and continuing through death, are essentially undergone alone. Friends might accompany us for a short while, but we cannot share our actual experiences, no matter how intimate we become. We are essentially alone. Thinking about all the sufferings of cyclic existence like this, in eight ways or three or six, we can come to see that cyclic existence is not even remotely somewhere to dally, even for a second. So Lama Tsongkhapa says, by contemplating in this way, do not generate even for an instant the wish for the pleasures of cyclic existence. When you have day and night unceasingly the mind aspiring for liberation, then you have generated the determination to be free. Tupta Chonren in her commentary asks, why does Lama Tsongkhapa say, even for an instant do not, do not generate the wish for the pleasures of cyclic existence? Why should we never ever think that the enjoyments of cyclic existence are pleasurable? This is because if you have for one instant, you're a goner, she writes. It's like AA. 
and that's Alcoholics Anonymous, not the company concerned with motor cars. If you're going to get off alcohol, you don't even take a drop, because if you take one drop, and there's the second drop, and the third drop, so even an instant of the pleasure of cyclic existence, and since we are samsara holies, we just keep inviting samsara. I mean, getting off drugs and alcohol takes some energy. Getting out of samsara takes some energy too. The people who are not substance abuse-aholics might be shopaholics, or sexaholics, or TVaholics, or internetaholics, or fidgetaholics, or running around in your car doing nothingaholics. Think about it. Then I really like what she says next. This attitude, the determination to be free from cyclic existence, what's commonly called renunciation, what it really means is having compassion for ourselves. We hear the word renunciation and we think, ew, suffering, I don't want to renounce. But actually, when we see the predicament we're in and we want to give it up, and we want to give it up the, the causes of the predicament, then we really truly care about ourselves. We really truly want to be happy and free of suffering. I think that's a good thing to think about sometimes when we're dealing with our various difficult habits. We all have certain bad habits that we do again and again. To really think, I really respect myself, I care about myself, this habit is not caring about me, I need to let it go. That is the meaning of really taking care of ourselves. It's not like the psychobabble of, oh, love yourself and go out and buy yourself a present. Waste more of the earth's resources and buy something you don't really need, trying to fill up the hole inside, and you'll be happy. Now that's the message we get from the media, isn't it? And that's not taking care of yourself. That is destroying yourself. If we really care about ourselves, we'll work on some of these mental-emotional habits that keep us stuck in difficulties. Why does she say that buying ourselves a nice present is destroying ourselves, or finding a new lover, or trying out a new adventure? Because none of these things, in fact nothing outside of ourselves, can ever fill the hole inside. It may make it a little less painful for a short while, but doesn't have the power to close the hole forever. And when the short-term comfort fades, we tend to go out and seek again the same unsatisfactory palliative out of unthinking habit. The lack we constantly experience has to do with what is going on within, what she calls our mental-emotional habits. And so to really free ourselves, we have to address those. And we'll only be able to overcome those bad habits if freedom from cyclic existence becomes our goal day and night. But that's difficult to accomplish. We have to think about the various sufferings of cyclic existence again and again. However, once we can no longer stand to be in cyclic existence even for a second, Tipton Children says we will have reached no small spiritual realization. When you have it, boy, there's going to be incredible energy behind your practice and incredible focus, she claims. Then people criticize you, people praise you, they love you, they hate you, you don't care. This is because you're really clear about what the meaning of your life is and what you're going to do. Stock market goes up, stock market goes down. Somebody takes advantage of you, somebody doesn't take advantage of you. Somebody scratches your car, somebody doesn't scratch your car. You don't care. Wouldn't it be nice not to care about all that stuff? How would this be so? It's because you care about something that's more important, getting out of the whole trip altogether. And that concludes our discussion on the first principal aspect of the path. I'm now going into a three-month retreat, 
and so we will have to continue with the other two when I get back in March. In the meantime, some of my earlier programs will be repeated. I apologize for any inconvenience this may cause, but I hope you'll be con you will continue to listen in. Thank you for being with me, and please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings, as usual. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/slash Free FM eighty nine to find out more.